can get started. Um, turn to Amos 7, but while you're doing that, uh, Bud Busby informed me that today he asked, this is always frightening to me when somebody starts a conversation kind of like this. Um, he asked Alexa who Frank Switzer was. You know, Alexa that, so I'm like, oh, brother, this is the last thing I want to hear. Anyway, so Frank Switzer was a professional ice hockey player from 1902 to 1910. He played for Pittsburgh and Michigan. So, well, no, the bigger thing is you know how much I love hockey. So I'm changing the doctrine of Re Redemption Church. I believe in reincarnation. <laughs> So I looked it up on Wikipedia, which is a very trustworthy source. It's where I get all my sermon quotes from. So <laughs> found that it was true. So anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wikipedia said I was reincarnated. That's right. Well, tonight we wrap it up. The judgments that, it, it, there's some irony tonight. The judgments that God pronounces on the northern kingdom through Amos are clear and final, and yet he leaves us at the end with this hope. And even before we get to those last five or six verses of the hope, of the remnant, you, you start to see every now and then a little hint or two that that's what's going to happen. It's just interesting. Um, you could The cynic could say that God's always hedging his bets. <laughs> uh, but in fact, his plan is always that there's going to be uh, redemption and restoration as a result of judgment. That, that there can't be justice, there can't be righteousness, there can't be redemption without judgment. God's ultimate purpose in judgment is not destruction, but restoration, reconciliation, and redemption. So the first nine verses in chapter 7 uh, kind of look like this. There are three shows, in other words, three things that uh, Amos is shown about what's going to happen. There are two pleas for mercy, and then there's one final word. So that's just the first little bit that we're going to go through, give you an idea of what to look for. Starting in verse 1, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Does anybody have any idea what any of that means? <laughs> okay, you, you see, this is one of the struggles with reading the Old Testament is you need a little bit of context. You, yeah, what? And what's the reference to the king's mowings? So why is the, what's, what's the king's though? You're right, but what's the king's? Somebody said it. I heard it. He gets the first, the king. So Jeroboam is getting, you know, he, uh, who's supposed to get the first? God. So you start to see where Israel is turned here. You start to see these little hints. So the king would come and take his, and then if there wasn't a second mowing, if there wasn't a second harvest, you were out of luck. He took his first to make sure he got his. That's just the way it was. And, and it's interesting, that language. During this time, God is forming the locusts. He's already made up his mind. So you have the king's mowings. He, the king gets them, and then the locusts are going to come. During, so this is not good news. You, you see how that all works? Now, 
Again, this is one of the challenges of Scripture or any ancient writing is in their context, everybody receiving this understood exactly. They, they didn't need any of this commentary. They knew exactly what was happening. But this is why I love this stuff is because it's fascinating, I think. And you have to sit here and listen to me because I have the microphone. So just get over it. Okay? So verse 2, when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, he's, uh, Amos is talking to God now. Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob, Israel, stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. So there's the first show, the first plea for mercy. There's three shows, two pleas for mercy going on. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. So we have locusts and now fire. And it devoured the great deep and was, and was eating up the land. Hadn't finished. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Here's the third show. That was the second show, the second plea of mercy. No third plea of mercy. Here's the third show. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So your harvest, the first show, your harvest is going to be destroyed by locusts. Amos pleads, God relents. This idea of Amos, the prophet, pleading with God, again, think about the context here. Uh, for six chapters, Amos has been pounding away on the judgment of Israel, right? Now, this is a message that God has given him that God is called to do, but he's pounding away on this. Now he sees these visions of it actually happening, and what does Amos do? He has this heart of compassion and mercy for the people, even though he knows they're sinners. Here you go. The prophet is not vindictive. This is, I think this is really important to hear. Uh, people who preach the reality of the depravity of human beings, people who preach sin, are often accused, uh, occasionally I get this, but I know from friends who also get this a lot, we're accused of being happy about it. <laughs> that we look forward to it. That we can't wait. Oh, God's going to smite you. And it's just, you know. No, the prophet's heart is not there. The, it's this misunderstanding of what genuine love and concern is. If you're a parent and you have a five-year-old at, at the Grand Canyon and the kid just takes off starting to run for the edge... Okay, in an effort to be compassionate and understanding, are you just going to let them run off the edge because you don't want to do something as unloving as to restrict them from what their heart really desires? You see that? Now, everybody gets that, but, but when it comes to me and my own little personal sin, now we got a different issue. Amos' heart is not vindictive. 
He, he loves the people. He's there because he's been called by God, but he loves the people. He, he, has, he has compassion about what he's doing. The second show, your homes are going to be destroyed by fire, but the destruction of the nation also here is not yet complete. And again, Amos pleads, God relents. But you've got to know this can only go, go on for so long. God repeatedly shows mercy to his people. He is a very patient God. There is no way that any of us are as patient with others as God is with us. I, I just know that for a fact. Just, that's just the human condition. He's very patient with us, but he's the one that gets accused of not being patient, right? But he's, but he's patient, but his patience is not infinite. And then you get to show number three. Show number three is your, your military and your places of worship will be destroyed. This is the ultimate act of judgment consuming the entire nation. And uh, he holds up a plumb line. I'm very upset I forgot to bring my antique plumb line tonight to show you. Uh, I was teaching once at uh, Paradise Valley Community Church on this passage with the plumb line and an old guy named Harvey Howard that was a part of that congregation, he's passed away, but he was just this great old saint, magnificent old guy. Uh, we had a great relationship, and he was a handyman. He had this, uh, I'd go over to his house occasionally and visit with him, and this, his garage was just filled with, I mean, he was Sears' best customer, you know. It had all these tools and everything. He had an old-fashioned plumb line. It's, it's like a level. You hold it up against the wall, and you can tell if the wall is, is tilting or leaning. So God is saying here, I'm holding up the plumb line to my people Israel. So in this metaphor, what is the plumb line? What's, what's the straight? It's the Torah. It's the Torah. So you're not living by the Torah. And the wall that's crooked is the people in the nation of Israel. They have broken relationship with God. They are leaning away from God. A, a wall that leans is a wall that eventually falls. They are leaning, and they're leaning away from God, and it's going to fall. And he's just telling them that's the truth of the matter. And this plumb line illustration is a, is a beautiful way of bringing that out. They want their idols. They want their sin. They, they don't want to lean into Torah. And so, again, we have to remember the judgment doesn't come because God is mean, but because humans are disobedient and stubbornly disobedient. Amos doesn't ask for mercy a third time, and nobody exactly knows why, but there are two schools of thought. Number one, the third judgment is so comprehensive, Amos doesn't even bother going back a third time. He sees this vision, he says, there's no point. Or... The imagery of the plumb line is so convicting, Amos knows there's no point. Now God is, by metaphor, invoking the Torah. He knows there's nothing he can do there. Either way, it sets us up for another, I think, fascinating passage in this book. It's the Amos get out of here conversation that he has with this guy Amaziah. And this is the rest of, verse, of chapter 17, verses 10 through 17. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, he sent a message to the king, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. 
The land is not able to bear his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from his land. That's partially true, right? But not completely true. Amaziah is a typical pastor or priest. He's embellishing a little bit. It's just true. Come on. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel for this, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and you shall, shall be divided up with a measuring line, and you shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Have a nice day. I added that last part. Okay, so Amaziah is the priest at Bethel. That's funny because Bethel is one of the cities now in the northern kingdom where uh, the people were again worshiping golden calves. Hadn't they learned their lesson? They, by the middle of the 8th century B.C., they were some of the people were already worshiping golden calves again. Hadn't they learned their lesson? He's a priest there, and he's allowing this to happen. And Amaziah wants Amos to head back to where he came from. He said, go tell Judah their sin. We're fine. And the irony of Amaziah is that the priesthood of Israel was specifically put in place by God to hold Israel, to hold God's people accountable to Torah. He's not doing his job. But the priesthood had become irreversibly corrupt. That's a problem. The priests only wanted messages of blessing and affirmation. If if you want to come in here and tell us how wonderful we are, if you want to bolster our self-esteem, have at it. But we, we don't want any rebuke. We don't want any discussion of sin. You don't have any right to come in here and and call for the end of oppression, exploitation, and deception. Uh, Don't sermonize about the importance of humility, obedience, or judgment. And again, I just, it's one of the biggest problems with the American Christian church today. This is not just true from my experience, it's true from what I read, it's true from talking to other pastors. The vast majority of people are looking for a church that will make themselves feel good about themselves. That's that's most people's primary goal or understanding of what a church is supposed to do. Make me feel good about myself. By far, the number one reason people do not stay at Redemption Church, not just Arcadia, but any Redemption Church, is because we talk about sin. That is the number one complaint by people who either visit and don't come back or who decide after staying for a little while that they leave. We always talk about the gospel. We always talk about redemption. We always talk about restoration and victory. We always do that. 
but it's that sin part that really riles a lot of people. I, and I always ask, I'm, I just, I'm into that logic stuff. Okay, but if we, if we don't have anything to be redeemed from or live in victory over, what's the point then? I don't, I don't understand that. Okay? And, and I'll just tell you personally, from personal experience, a number of times after a Sunday service, somebody will approach me or email me, and, and they will say something to this effect, and this is almost verbatim every time. The point of me coming to church is so that I can feel good about myself. I did not feel good about myself when I left. I, I, was, I heard about sin. Okay. No, that's not the point. That may be what you're looking for, but that is not the point of the... If you're looking for a biblical church, that, there, there isn't anything in there, in the Bible, about that's what the point of church is. The point of church is to proclaim the gospel and exalt Jesus. By definition, that means you're probably not going to get the affirmation and the attention and the perks that you're expecting. However, if it's Arcadia, I have good news for you. You can go in either direction on Camelback, and there's a Nordstrom's just down the street. They will affirm you. They will adore you. They will give you everything you want. They will live up to all of your expectations. We're not Nordstrom's. That's not the business that we're in. In verse 12, Amaziah calls Amos a seer. He doesn't call him a prophet. This is actually an insult in their, con in their context. It's an insult. It's a belittling comment. It's a term of derision. And then notice in verse 13, Amaziah doesn't call it God's sanctuary. Whose sanctuary is it? It's the king's sanctuary. You see how messed up they are? Even in their own defense, they don't realize how they're just laying their cards on the table. And then Amos says, okay, this wasn't my idea. The first thing he does is he says, you need to understand, this wasn't my idea. It's not like I woke up one morning and thought, eh, this shepherding thing is terrible. I'm going to go tell people that don't even like me how awful they are. That's what I'm going to do for a living. God, God did this. And then he tells Amaziah that because he is rejecting this message, he will personally suffer a very unpleasant judgment. Children are going to be destroyed. Your wife's going to become a prostitute publicly. Your land will be taken. Whatever honor you think you have, that will be exposed as a farce. You're going to die a miserable and, and, and obscure death, and your nation's going to go into exile. Congratulations on your legacy. Now, what's interesting about that whole line there is it really plays on two levels. Okay? The northern kingdom, Israel, has become a prostitute to God's word. You see that? They're, they're committing adultery. They're sleeping around, so to speak. Metaphorically, this plays out for the nation as well. And the, their children are going to be destroyed. They're going to go into exile. There are all kinds of problems here. And then we go into chapter 8, which is a pronouncement of judgments that will bring bitter mourning. Hang in there. We're getting to the happy stuff eventually. I'll just read 1 through 14 straight through, and we'll, we'll uh, unpack it. So it's a little bit of a long reading. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I, and I said, is this a trick question? I see a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. 
The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may again sell grain? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the epa, uh, the epha small and the shekel great. I love that one. And deal deceitfully with false balances. When, when do we get to do that again? That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. They're not just selling the grain. They're, they're padding the poundage with the chaff, the dross, the junk. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again, like the Nile of, of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. Ooh. Does that remind you of any other event in the Bible? Interesting. And darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Now there's a point to that. (laughs) I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord. They shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So summer fruit, a basket of summer fruit is symbolic of the last of the harvest. It's God's poetic way of saying, no more patience. We're done. The judgment is coming. Long time ago, I was in a circle of people praying, and one of the guys that prayed said, God, we thank you for your, into, your infinite patience. And how many of you ever get distracted during prayer when somebody else is praying? You start thinking about it. Yeah, so I'm like, ooh, that's interesting. We're thanking him for his infinite patience. He's, he's patient, but his patience is not exactly infinite. There is a day coming. I, I didn't correct the guy after. I just, it was just, I just was thinking about it. In verse 3, the people Israel, it, this is funny. Look at verse 3. Your songs are going to turn into mourning and wailing, Okay. So if you've heard of Malcolm Gladwell, magnificent author, incredible books, I've read them all. He's got a podcast now called Revisionist History that's fantastic. I've been listening to the podcast. He did one podcast on how uh, they rank the top 50 rock and roll songs of all time. And all but one of those songs is a happy song, a joyful song about fun things, cool things, things going really well. There's only one song in there that could be considered maybe kind of a, kind of a dirge, kind of melancholy, only one. Then there's the ranking of the top 50 country songs. <laughs> 
It's just the opposite. <laughs> All the country songs are lamentations, except one. <laughs> Okay? They're all lamentations. So here's what God's saying. I'm turning your rock and roll into country. That's what he's saying. That's what we'd say today anywhere. <laughs> and, and, and he says, so many dead bodies everywhere. Silence. So here's what he's saying when he says that. Pagan worship, idolatry, false gods always ends up in destruction and silence. The only thing left standing is the one true God. And he's the one who has been summarily rejected by the people. We heard Amaziah saying, get out of here. We just want to hear peace, peace. Verses 4 through 6 are, are filled with a tragic lack of self-awareness. They believe they have fooled God with their acts of religion. They really believe that. And so they're actually cocky about it now. And they plead, hey, God, just, would you just, okay, okay, just get this over with so we can go back to our deceitful ways. And I love uh, verse 5, make the ephah small and the shekel great. We're going to take our little grain in there, and we're going to package it and weigh it and fix it and scam it in just the right way that the, shekel, the shekels are going to come raining down. We're going to have a huge payday, one that we don't even deserve. And false balances have always been a, a, a symbol of injustice and corruption in the Old Testament. I mentioned this last week. Uh, wouldn't you be mad if you found out that your grocery store, the scales added 15% to all the produce you were buying? Now, in one trip, it may not be all that much, right? It's called skimming, though. You multiply that by all your trips and by all the other trips of people coming in there, you're talking about real dough now, real money, okay? And verse 8, it was common knowledge, this was common knowledge that the Nile always rose once a year to destructive levels in Egypt and, and it was devastating and then it would recede far beyond what anybody thought it could recede to. The imagery is unmistakable. God's in charge of this. And on that day, the sun will go down at noon. Darkness is a sign of judgment. And of course, when Jesus was crucified, it was dark from noon to three. Nobody could explain it. There, um, uh, what's his name? Not Shelby Spong, but the other guy that's in the uh, Jesus seminar. Shoot, can't think of his name right now. But uh, he said, oh, there was just an eclipse. That's all it was. <laughs> um. So there's a foreshadowing of the crucifixion here. In verse 10, there will be sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. The wearing of sackcloth and the shaving of the head are signs of deep mourning and sorrow. So you'd put on the sackcloth, shave your head. It, 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 was, it was, stay away from me, I'm in mourning. But here's the problem. It was not a mourning and sorrow that was born of repentance, but of regret. And there's a difference. This was a mourning and sorrow that was born of, oh, I got caught. I, I regret the fact that I got caught, not of, I really repent from my ways and I'm turning toward God. And, and verses 11 and 12, God's people will be sent into exile, and here's the irony of this exile. They'll be exiled because they rejected the word of God, but in exile they will start to search everywhere for God's word. They'll want God's word in exile. It won't be available anywhere. There will be this famine of God's word while they're in exile. 
And that's when it'll finally hit them. Oh, you must be serious about this. It's a little bit too late. Verse 13, the lovely virgins and the young men. Here's what that's referencing. It's all the young people who think they're invincible. So right now, it's all the millennials. Ten years ago, it was the Generation Xers. Ten years before that, it was me. <laughs> you know, you're young, you're cocky, you're invincible. Eh, whatever, we can figure it out, we can take care of it. They're saying, yeah, you guys need to figure this out too. In verse 14, if you put your faith in false gods and idols, you will be disappointed. Uh, D.A. Carson says this, pseudo-Yahwehs are no Yahweh at all. Pseudo-Yahwehs are no Yahweh at all. First four verses of chapter 9, some good rhetoric in here. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with a sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. So the capitals are the tops of the columns of the pagan temples where they were worshiping. He says, I'm going to destroy the capitals and I'm going to destroy the thresholds. The thresholds are the foundation of the temple. So this is what's known as a merism. It's a rhetorical device where you have the two extreme parts or the two opposite words representing the totality and the entirety of one thing. He's saying he's going to destroy the temples. It's a poetic way of saying, I'm going to destroy the temples. And he's got a couple more morisms in there. He talks about if you go into Sheol or if you're in heaven, I'm going to grab you from either one of those places and I'm going to get you. So from the, from the heights to the depths. And then there's another morism, the top of Carmel, the, the tallest mountain in the area, and the depths of the sea. So he's, he's saying there, there is no place you can go to escape my judgment. And then he says, even when you go into exile, you can't escape my judgment even in exile. You're like, I'm in exile. I'm in judgment now. No, there's more judgment coming even in exile. He's, he's kind of unhappy about this. Okay, now, but think about that rhetoric and think about how that story, that rhetoric, the capitals, the thresholds, the, the, the shield, the heaven, the Mount Carmel, um, the, the sea, and going into exile. Think about that poetic rhetoric and how perhaps Paul redeems that rhetoric in Romans chapter 8. I, I mentioned this Sunday morning. The more I read the Old Testament, the more I study Paul. Paul seems to have Old Testament allusions behind virtually everything he's writing. So let me just read you those verses from Romans 8. 8, 31 through 39. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's presenting our case for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like Paul redeems what, what God is saying in Amos 9, 1 through 4. He's saying, here's, here's the other side of the Messiah, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Here's, here's how God is saving his remnant now. It's beautiful stuff. And then verses 5 through 10, we have the last of the judgments. And we start to get a little bit of a hint that something might be okay. <clears throat> the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? <coughs> I did not bring you up, Israel, from the land of Egypt and the Philistines, from Kaftor and the Syrians, from Kerr. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Holy cow, a glimmer of hope! <laughs> For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. So verses 5 and 6 are a simple reminder of the sovereignty and majesty of God. This is no pseudo-deity making these claims. He's the creator of everything. He's the real deal. He's the one that led them out of Egypt. He's the one that controls these other nations too. He brought the, Syria, uh, the Syrians out of Kerr. Remember he said earlier in the book that he was going to send the Syrians back into exile into their homeland, which is kind of an odd thing. And verse 7 is another reminder of all that God has done for his people, but then... Verse 8, actually a small glimmer of hope, but only a few. Again, it's, this is the remnant. If you remember in Elijah's day, the remnant was only 7,000 people. This is not the first time the people had been through this. But then he takes one more shot. Verse 10. Now, now look at verse 10. All those who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Isn't that just like us? Eh, nothing's fine. We'll be nothing's bad. We'll be fine. Peace, peace. Peace. It's okay. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. And then the epilogue, which is all upbeat. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. And raise it up, raise up its ruins. 
and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, God does not intend that his judgment on his people are final, but rather it's a tool to bring about redemption and, re and, and uh, um, repentance. R.C. Sproul writes this of verse 11. But as the Lord has done throughout the history of salvation, he would use this destruction as a means of saving his faithful remnant. So right out of the gate, you see he's going to reconstruct this booth of David. What's a booth? It's like a voting booth. Is this some political statement? Sorry? Yeah, there's, there's a feast of the booths. It's also known as the feast of the tabernacles. Anybody know when the, fe the feast of booths is? Tabernacles? Quick, smartphone, Google. September, it's usually in September. Okay? A, a booth practically, in other words, in its practical application, is a tent-like shelter built out of poplar and olive tree branches. And, it, and it's designed to protect people and things from sun and rain. But it's not a house. It's, it's just a, it's just like a, you know how you go to um, <clears throat> these big volleyball, club volleyball tournaments and people have set up those 10 by 10 tents out there that have no sides, but it's, that's a booth, only theirs is canvas. This is made out of poplar and olive tree leaves. It's like a covered porch. Uh, it was, the booths were often built in the center of a vineyard so that when workers needed a break, they could go and sit under it. Or once they were bringing in the grapes, they didn't want the grapes sitting out in the hot sun, so they would bring the grapes under the booth. And then they had a way of building the booth so that um, somebody on the crew could also go up and, and sit or stand on the top of the booth and, and watch the entire vineyard for thieves. Okay, Which is interesting because if you read through Leviticus, you understand that they're supposed to leave some of the some of the grapes for people to go ahead and take. That They're not supposed to glean them all. And so I always wondered, you know, there's some tension there. Which ones are the ones that you're leaving the grapes for and which are the thieves, you know? But that's, they had a lookout up there, okay? I think about these stupid things that I don't have any way to control or change, okay? Um, the booths were also used during the 40 years in wilderness, People would seek shelter, the Israelites would seek shelter with them. Symbolically, so that's the practical application, symbolically, many Israelites would build a booth, a small booth on the roof of their house that was symbolic of the protection of the Lord God. So there's, there's great meaning in the booth, and the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is a celebration at the end of the harvest season. We don't need to use the booths 
anymore, practically, for a while, until we sow and we begin to reap again. And so raising up the booth of David simply means that God's provision and protection will be found again for the remnant. And verses 13 through 15, verses 13 through 15 are foreshadows of the new Jerusalem. We could go into all of that, but frankly, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that it, I, I hardly go three or four months without reading Genesis, I'm sorry, Revelation 21 or 22 to, to us, because it's just like constantly looking forward to that. But you read 21 and 22, especially the first five or six verses of each of those chapters in Revelation, you see that verses 13 through 15 are just kind of a foreshadowing of all that, the restoration, the, um, the coming kingdom. So as we wrap up, <clears throat> I want to go back to the title of this series. We, we titled this series, If God's Justice is to Prevail, God's Judgment Cannot Be Averted. One of the challenges with a book like Amos is its negative tone. <laughs> By the way, if you want another book that's kind of got a negative tone, um, uh, Hosea, first three chapters are kind of narrative, a little storytelling, and then it's just judgment after judgment after judgment. Kind of, you know, makes you feel a little bit bad for the people. But it's the negative tone. And, and one of the reasons, again, is you and I as human beings... We want justice, but we, we want it without the fuss of judgment. And you can't have justice without judgment. It's also part of how, Frank, here you go. I made a traffic reference on Sunday morning. I'll give you another one. Um, when I'm in traffic, I want judgment for everybody else, and I want grace for me. <laughs> you see how that works? That's also known as the self-serving bias. That's like a real thing in social science, okay? Judgments have to be made, though, for justice to prevail. For there to be grace, there has to be repentance and faith. For there to be good news, there has to be bad news. And what may be most sad about Amos is that even with all these warnings, the nation refused to change, and the Assyrians came. They came 30 years later, but they came. See how patient God is? Even after this, it was another 30 years. But even as devastating as that was, it wasn't enough to end the story. The remnant lived, they eventually came back, read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt, and that was the scene for a lot of Jesus' ministry and action in the Gospels, and it, was also, it also paved the way for the son of David to be born so that the son of David could be the Messiah and do what the son of David was purposed by God the Father to do. So this isn't the end of the story. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 15. This should be encouraging. Starting in verse 21. And they, the they are the people sort of administering the crucifixion of Jesus as they're heading out to where he would be crucified. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the 
country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, they asked him to carry the cross, Jesus' cross. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh was um, uh, sort of a, an antiseptic. It, it was used to, to help try to deaden pain. So you mix it with wine, and it became a pretty good little concoction that could maybe help deal with some pain a little bit. So they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. And they crucified him and divided the garments, his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. That's a fulfillment of Psalm 22. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour in, on a Jewish timetable is 9 o'clock in the morning. So they pounded him down and erected the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Now, you know in the other Gospels, uh, the professional religious people really argued with Pilate over this. They didn't want that. They wanted it. They wanted it to say, he claims to be the king of the Jews. And he's like, I, I've written what I've written, that's it. So the irony there, of course, is that he is the king. He didn't just say he's the king, he is the king. I love these little story details. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down there from the cross. Um, they always did crucifixion in, in pop places with lots of population. They didn't, they didn't take them way outside of the city, out into the desert where nobody was going to see it. The, the crucifixion was punishment and condemnation for the criminal, but it was also a message to the rest of the people. Don't you do what this guy did. So they, wanted, they, they would crucify at 24th Street and Camelback. They wanted everybody to see it. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him, one to another, saying, He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They wouldn't have believed. They saw so many other things that were probably more spectacular than him wrestling away from a cross. They weren't going to believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Verse 33, and it was, when it was the sixth hour, noon had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to three, it was dark. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's actually Aramaic, not Hebrew. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. They thought Eloi was, was a way of saying Elijah. They misunderstood. Not everybody, but some of them. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether I, uh, Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So apparently Elijah didn't show up. And the, curtains of the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And even that's not the end of the story. 
But that's good news for us because what, what happened to Jesus on that cross is what is sealing the kingdom for you and I today. His, his sacrifice on the cross seals our place in the kingdom. His resurrection gives us the guaranteed hope of new life. This new life in the new Jerusalem, which is somewhat described in Revelation 21 and 22, but not fully described. If you want some speculation that I think is pretty good about the new Jerusalem, read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. It's not short, but it's really good. The chapters are short, so you can take it in little bite-sized morsels. But You've read it? Yeah, it's really good. Everything that Jesus was doing there, think about this, encompasses all the past of Israel. Um, the people being chosen and found in Abraham, um, them having this place in the Fertile Crescent, in, in the land of Canaan, the whole Joseph story, they end up in Egypt, the Exodus redemption story, they move out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, wilderness, promised land, the, the nation of Israel with the ten tribes, the splitting of the kingdom north and south, the northern kingdom being sacked by Assyria, the southern kingdom being sacked by Babylon, the great exile, the great Babylonian exile of 70 years, them coming back, some of them not coming back, some of them actually moving further east to Persia, and we have that wonderful story of Esther. But many of them coming back, and then the 400 years of silence, and then Jesus arrives on the scene. He is looking back at all of that, that narrative history of God and his people, and he is the embodiment of God's salvation narrative. He is the gospel, the good news. And everything in the New Testament now begins to say, here's who he is, and this is why, because of who he is, this is why you should live in this way, live in a manner worthy of your calling in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of who he is, he reigns now and he's coming again, and you have this hope that you get to point to in the future. God's narrative of salvation history. We see it in Amos, we see it in Jesus, and it's what we get to look forward to and expect. We're living in that story right now. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for the hope that we have now in Christ. God, I pray that we do, we would live as a church, as a people, and as individuals in a manner worthy of our calling in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I also know the reality that we, we, uh, uh, we still, our flesh rages against the Spirit. And so, God, let us also come to your throne of grace boldly and with confidence that we know that when you see us, you see Christ, you see righteousness. God, thank you for that gift. Thank you for making us whole. God, we look forward to being with you forever and ever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.